0: everyone, and welcome to the EdTech Podcast, and this episode brought to you in collaboration with EdSurge. It brings me great pleasure to host EdSurge on the EdTech Podcast. EdSurge were one of the original inspirations behind me setting up the podcast over six years ago, so I was thrilled to hear from managing editor Jeff Young. Jeff and I have often bumped into each other in past lives around the globe, and more recently, he has been developing this three-part series to explore the nuances of adult lifelong learners and what sparks their return to university. For any UK listeners, you'll know that in the American context, college is referring to uni. And for all others, stay strapped in for this first peek into how life events and external forces often challenge our well-laid educational plans and the motivational forces that compel us to complete university as returning adult learners. Having listened to this first episode, I'm excited to hear from the next one. Questions in my head, will our future education be less about finishing and more about dipping in as and when? Will we get over the to-do list of completing our college degree and how can technology as well as intrinsic motivation help keep us on track? A shout out to Worktrip and Lumina Foundation for supporting this episode and great to have the learner voice front and centre in this mini-series. As always, do let us know what you think. Here we go.
1: What if it took four years for a butterfly to emerge from its chrysalis and take flight? Four years of doing whatever happens during that process until it can come out in a new form. If it took that long, it would seem almost inevitable that something would come along and interrupt this incubation. For us humans, getting a college degree typically does take four years or sometimes much longer and not surprisingly the process of gathering college credits and learning new skills and new ways of thinking that process often does get interrupted there are at least 36 million americans who have earned some college credit but not an actual degree these days more and more colleges they're expanding efforts to try to get these students back in the cocoon of campus whether online or in person So, they can help them get their degrees that hopefully fly higher in their lives and their careers. But colleges, it turns out, are far better at getting students to begin a college education than they are at helping students finish their degrees, especially if they get off track.
2: Many colleges are completely oriented towards new graduates from high school, and it's just very difficult to get your mind around a
1: different model. That's Iris Palmer a senior advisor at the think tank New America. Colleges definitely want to attract these returning students. After all, colleges need people to take classes these days, since enrollments have been falling since the start of the pandemic. And demographic changes mean that there's going to be fewer students graduating from high schools in the U.S. in the next few years.
2: And even though there's a lot of conversation out there and like a lot of um, motivation for these colleges to broaden their appeal so that they can enroll these types of students, it's a huge cultural shift for them. It just it is not easy.
1: Why is it so hard? And what is it like for these students who come back to finish what they started, often years or even decades after they first tried college? What do these students want? What are the challenges they face? And what strategies seem to be working? Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, a weekly look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm a reporter and an editor here at Ed Surge. This is the first episode of a new series we're calling Second Acts, where we're digging into the struggles of returning adult college students. Over this three-episode narrative series, we'll be following the educational journeys of three college students from different backgrounds in different parts of the country.
3: From Detroit, Michigan.
4: Okay, so I'm in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I'm located in uh, Honolulu. Along
1: the way, we'll meet some of their professors, their academic coaches, and other folks working behind the scenes to help them succeed. And we hope to get beyond the typical recommendations in policy briefs and white papers and get to the heart of this college completion effort. As I got to know these three students over the course of the last six months or so, one of the first things that struck me was that to understand the experience of returning college students, you need to look back at their earlier school experiences. After all, that's what shaped their sense of how they fit in in an educational setting. Or don't fit in. That's definitely the case for Paul Carr, who is now 47 years old. He grew up in a Detroit suburb to working-class parents. His folks actually met while working at Chrysler, and they had big aspirations for him, doing things like signing him up for piano
3: lessons. And it wasn't cool, you know, to be the only kid in the neighborhood who who couldn't go hoop. You know, I couldn't go outside and hoop because I had to practice, and so I'd have to get that done, then I could meet up with everybody. And so, you know, being teased for that and... um it, 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 allowed, it started my process of dumbing myself down to kind of like fit in.
1: Paul ended up quitting piano against the advice of his parents, especially his dad. And he regularly got into what he calls mischief at school. So much so that his parents issued him an ultimatum. If he got in trouble one more time, they would send him off to another school. But the problem was that among his many talents, he was good at roasting his classmates.
3: And there's always this thing growing up. Some people call it the dozens. We called it roasting. So we would we would roast each other and just kind of crack jokes. And one one morning, I was um, a little a little uh, I was good this morning. I was really roasting this one kid that we grew up with. You know, we were friends, and I think I just hit a I hit a nerve. And so right before. We got to his locker was near my first period uh, science class, Mr. Lublin. I'll never forget. And so walking into class, like I could tell he was upset. and We exchanged words. And the next thing I knew we were fighting. And so we ended up uh, in in school suspension. And so my goal was to beat the call from the school home, from my middle school home, so that I didn't get in trouble. Because I knew that I had like, you know, one more thing and that was it. I had one last straw and this was it.
1: Paul still remembers sweating and looking at the clock as he sat in that suspension. And when it was over, he raced home, hoping to explain the situation to his parents before they got the call from school.
3: But they called immediately. So my mother had time to stew over it by the time I got here. And then my dad probably left, left work a little earlier. Um, and so by the time I got here, she had made the determination to pack this small, tiny duffel bag. You know, like a bike bag or something that, you, you know, you would tote around if you're cycling. You know, it was a really tiny thing. And it had two or three little outfits that I paid for with my own money. So he was like, you know, get in the car, you're going.
1: Suddenly, he, he was in a different world. A well-regarded private school called University of Detroit Jesuit High School and Academy. There were lots of what he called well-to-do kids. His own family wasn't poor by any means. But he says they did struggle a bit. How did he feel about this new school? He hated it.
3: I was a public school, guy, you know, kid, and I wanted to go to public school with my with my buddies and and the, and the people that I grew up with. I spent the first year and a half working to get kicked out, and that didn't work. So j- the Jesuits have a um, have a uh, thing called Jug, which is an acronym for Justice Under God. <laughs> and so I spent time in Jug. I spent a good third of my freshman year in detention after school why did you, and why
1: were you so eager to get kicked out of your new
3: school um it was all boys number one uh I didn't want to be there i didn't know it was a culture shock you know uh my parents were um blue collar you know I, the the kids that I went to high school with uh, UAD is a is a is a really really good school. you have to test into it um I passed it, you know, the interest exam. I wasn't dumb, you know, by any means, but I just, I wasn't applying myself. And I think a lot of times what happens now is that when you're smart uh, or you have some talents, um, it's often a challenge to, to, to live in them. I don't know if that makes sense, but to like really, um, really embrace your talents and abilities and, um, and, and thrive within that within them, and so I often dwarf myself, I underperformed, I underachieved so as not to um make my friends or people around me uncomfortable with the fact that perhaps I was excelling.
1: Paul still felt himself trying to be what people expected him to be to be what he called a normal guy
3: It's tough for a young you know black kid to um be intelligent. You know, that's not, that's not the narrative. That's, that's not what we're often encouraged to do um, at a young age is to be a nerd or be one of the smart kids or, you know what I mean? And I was totally that. I was totally, I got along with all circles. I was an athlete, but I also got along with the really smart kids that weren't athletes that played chess and I played chess and I got along with the kids in the debate club. And I got along with You know, the kids that were into music and were kind of like the burnouts or what we would consider the burnouts. I was, I liked all of that stuff. So it was just an interesting thing in hindsight. It's interesting to look at myself underperforming and underachieving.
1: So despite his ability to get along with all these different groups at his new school, he still didn't know where he fit in. And he kept longing to go back to be with his old classmates
3: until I realized I wasn't going to beat the system, right? So I might as well just start kind of getting acclimated. And by the time I, I left, I absolutely loved it. Looking back, he sees that his parents' strategy had actually worked. He was
1: thriving. And by the end of high school, he knew he wanted to go to college. And there was one college in particular he thought would be the perfect fit. Morehouse College in Atlanta.
3: Morehouse is a really special place, um, As a HBCU, a historically black college university, um, there's this thing called the Morehouse mystique that can't really be explained. I don't know if you know, have heard of it, but Morehouse is kind of shrouded in this kind of mystery of what makes a Morehouse man. Here's how this
1: all-male historically black college has described that mystique. Quote, the mystique is joining a brotherhood like none other. And after being ignored, stereotyped, or marginalized, it's about finally finding that home, that deep inside you always knew existed, where you are the heart, soul, and hope of the community and where you are not alone, End quote. It's the first historically black college to produce a Rhodes Scholar, and it's where Martin Luther King Jr. graduated. The Morehouse mystique was calling to Paul. That was where he knew he needed to go.
3: I only applied to one school, you know, I applied to Morehouse um, at U of D and I got rejected. I got rejected. So my, my they looked at my freshman and beginning of sophomore grades, sophomore year grades at U of D high. And they said, you know, no, but my test scores were really good. I had a lot of extracurriculars, a lot of volunteering. So I fit what it is to be a, a, a Morehouse man. In so many other ways, but they could see that something was off with the grades, right?
1: A man Paul describes as an elder in his community who had also graduated from Morehouse, offered to help him out. He set up a meeting for Paul with a Morehouse dean, Sterling Hudson, so that Paul
3: could plead his case so he was Dr. Hudson was the dean of admissions, so I had to go to I had to go to Morehouse while I was in high school, and I interviewed with him and he looked at um he looked at at my transcripts and he took his glasses off. And I don't know if I can say this, but he said, son, you bullshitting. <laughs> and uh he said, You got everything that it takes to go here, but you you toyed around with the actual schoolwork. And it took me aback to see this. I mean, I'm looking at all the degrees on the, you know, Dr. Hudson had on his wall, well dressed, very stately gentleman, just kind of talked to me like an uncle. Um, you know, like just a coach, somebody that I knew in my community and I I knew then that, you know, I got to be here. And he said, okay, I think that you can handle this, but you got to prove it to me. So I want you to go back home to Detroit. I want you to enroll in a school, in a, in a community college or a, a, a college program and take an English and a math class, a college level class and send me your transcripts. And if you can hack it, if you finish strong. I'll let you in on on probation. So I did that. I came home. Um, I was still in, in in high school. I worked at a at a seniors uh, facility washing dishes. I was a dish dog with a couple of my UAD uh, high uh, buddies.
1: So Paul had gone from trying to get kicked out of high school to begging to get into a certain college.
3: And so I would go to school. Then I'd go to work. And then I'd leave work and go to to take night classes at Oakland Community College. Um, And I got A's in these classes, and I sent my transcripts down to Dr. Hudson. And uh, Dean Hudson, he let me in on academic probation. So Paul was in,
1: but it's not that he still didn't have some nagging doubts.
3: Uh, What do they call it? Imposter syndrome. Should I really be here? You know, so I had a bad case of that, I think.
1: But Paul still had big dreams for himself, majoring in political science and pre-law with a minor in sociology. And he was almost finished with Morehouse. He had just one semester left. One more semester to go to get that degree when he got unexpected news from his
3: girlfriend. And we found out that we were going to be parents with our eldest, And so um, after she graduated, I decided that I would take a semester off to kind of get us established. I was working part-time. I said, okay, I'll start working full-time. At the time, I was clerking. I was clerking at a, at a law firm called... Uh, Drew Echo and Farnham. So I decided that it was, it was the responsible thing for me to stack some bread and, you know, get us established, you know, get us out of a rental situation into an ownership situation for homes and, you know, for a home and, you know, just kind of create a life for my new family, right? And I said, I'll be back next semester.
1: That was 24 years ago. This fits into a national trend. It turns out that becoming a parent is one of the top reasons students stop out of college. And for men with kids, this pull away from college that Paul describes is super common, according to David Kroom of the Aspen Institute, who studied the challenges faced by student parents.
5: Because of this sort of, like, pressure that exists on men in this country to be supportive of their family, to, like, make, to make money, to that sort of thing taking time off or working less hours to be enrolled in a post-secondary pathway, can, it just seems to be like a very stressful sort of provision for men. And so, um, so I think that there's this sort of pressure or peace that exists within, the, within men and fathers, where they feel that they need to be you know, supportive, be financially supportive of their families. And any instance where they take time off or take work less in order to go to school so they can better themselves is a dollar less that they're earning for their families, right? And so I think there's that, that stigma associated with that that seems to be um, kind of portrayed in the data that we saw.
1: For those student parents who do stick around campus and complete a degree, David says there are often lots of obstacles and some professors and systems that are far from accommodating.
5: Some faculty have really, you know, strict policies. One of our parent advisors talked about how um, there was one faculty, one class that she was taking where uh, a, a faculty member, like, had a, a lock time that she, they locked the door at a certain time. And if you, you know, didn't come before that time, they wouldn't let you in. And, you know, luckily she is someone who she was late because she had, she's a single mother and she had to take, she had a childcare issue. And so she was late. She was like, like only a few minutes late, like um, to class, and she banged on that door. She was like, you know, and the the faculty member let them in, but, you know, set a snide remark, basically, to kind of make her again feel as if she didn't belong in that space because she had, like, this issue with childcare, right? And so those sorts, I think, of policies and practices that exist, um, which can be a bit more uh, authoritative in certain ways, um, that exist in our systems, especially um, at colleges or schools that maybe are serving low-income individuals and things like that, are dissuading to, to those Those students and, and importantly, also dissuading the student parents.
1: Paul settled down, and, and he kept working as a clerk. He and his girlfriend got married, and they eventually had three kids. But he felt haunted by things he'd walked away from, and from the educational opportunities that he started, but never quite finished.
3: My father told me when I quit piano, he was like, you know, if you quit, you'll make a habit of quitting. And I didn't understand it. I was 13 years old. I didn't get it. You know, I just wanted to do what my friends were doing and I wanted to just be a regular guy. I didn't want to do anything extraordinary. I didn't want to I didn't want to really embrace the talents that I had in music, you know, um, or anything. You know, I just kind of wanted to be I didn't want to I didn't want to ruffle any feathers. I didn't want to rock the boat. I didn't want to stand out. Um, And um again that's kind of a common narrative for you know young black boys is to just kind of be normal uh don't don't make any waves you know just kind of coast through and keep your head down so i I kept hearing my father i kept hearing this echo of my dad talking to me about quitting and making how it would become a a, a habit how it would become habitual if you quit one thing it gets easier and easier to quit something else
1: time passed by 2001 Paul was clerking for a big law firm in D.C.
3: I got a call that Friday on the seventh from my mother. I just got into my my desk. I put my briefcase down, and I saw her number come up on my phone. Um, and I said, "Hey, how's Dad doing?" He had been in the hospital. Um, he had Parkinson's, and she said, uh, "You need to get here. He's dying." So I'm like, "What? Wait, what? He's supposed to come home tomorrow. What do you mean he's dying?"
1: So Paul dropped everything and flew home to Detroit.
3: I, I made it here in time to. Spent time with them, all my siblings and I did, and um, I promised them I would finish my degree.
1: That was the promise Paul made to his dad on his dad's deathbed, to get his college diploma. On that very same visit in September 2001, terrorists flew airplanes into the World Trade Center. Paul's company had its headquarters in the World Trade Center, and though he worked in D.C. at the time, Paul had been to a meeting in the World Trade Center not long before. The world just seemed to be falling apart. And despite that promise to his dad, his educational plans, they remained on pause.
3: This was in 2001. So this, this was eating away at me for years to finish.
1: Paul's story reminds me that it, it usually isn't just one factor that leads someone to drop out of college or to decide not to go back. And hearing Paul, it sounds like it was probably a lot of things a mix of societal pressures and expectations, unexpected events in his personal life, not quite feeling maybe like he belonged in an academic setting, and world events that unexpectedly sparked a recession and global uncertainty. And these aren't even the only factors at play. We'll look at some other common roadblocks after the break. Stay with us.
0: Hello. Did you know that in a recent Stanford experiment, in-person teams generated about 15% more ideas than virtual teams? And what's more, MIT's Human Dynamics Centre found that conversations outside of formal meetings are the most important factor that contributes to team success. That's why we built WorkTrip to supercharge team culture and exceptional performance through offsite and back-at-desk working design. If you're looking to take your team on an offsite this year, make it count. Help re-inject the social learning, new ideas and adventure back into the world of work. Go to worktrip.com and check out our team-specific listings, including venues, experiences, executive coaches, facilitators and speakers. Our vision is to help all teams from high-growth startups to well-established corporates to get together enjoy work, and be productive. We scale those aha moments which unlock great things.
4: And
1: these aren't even all the factors at play. I was reminded of that as I got to know Gina Peterson, who graduated from Linmar Public High School in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. She was headed straight to college. But she couldn't really answer the question of why she was going to college.
4: I was that kid. I was like, all right, this is what you do, right? I, I did the thing. I was like, I guess I go to college now because that's what everybody else in school was doing.
1: In high school, academics, they weren't really her thing.
4: C's get degrees too, kids. C's get degrees. Oh, geez. And Gina did not feel like she had a lot of options as far as where to go to college. So I was like, well, what am I going to do? I'm obviously not going to get into university. I hadn't taken the ACTs or the SATs, um, basically because of some, mm, let's just call it bad leadership. And uh, I was like, "Okay, well, I'm going to do community college and I'm going to go to Kirkwood and it's going to be great. So I did. And she also figured out how to pay for it. And I applied for all these grants and everything. And actually my first year of college was 100% free because I had Pell grants, including like enough to buy books and a big computer. Back at, you know, 20 some plus years ago, they were the big towers with the huge CRT monitors and everything. yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, I was really
1: fortunate. But while she had the financial side figured out, Gina still wasn't sure what she was there to learn exactly.
4: And changed my major three times. Okay, so I started out as accounting because I thought it was really cool. I took an accounting class in high school and was like, hey, I understand this. I get it. Let's go in that direction. Not the same when you get into college. Um, And then I was like, okay, well, I want to be a paralegal now. And then, Um, that for me did not work out because it was a ton of reading, and I just couldn't commit to it, right? Like, I couldn't get in the right mindset for it. I just shouldn't have ever really been there because I was never in the right mind space for it, unfortunately. Um, and then I just changed it to liberal arts.
1: There was a sense of deja vu in this transition from high school to community college.
4: I was living at home. Me and my mom, um, you know, I'd go to school and come home and do homework. And it was really like I never left high school. Even though it was feeling familiar, it wasn't all positive. I hated high school. I hated it. I was bullied, didn't have a lot of friends, got picked on, that whole thing. So when I did like when I did go to college, that wasn't happening anymore. And it was great. But it just, I don't know if the, the feelings were still there or what, but it just didn't, it just didn't feel right. And I, I truly, truly think that, you know, the way you're treated in high school definitely carries into college a little bit.
1: Even though school was paid for and, and Gina said she did make one friend who she still hangs out with,
4: she didn't feel connected. It just wasn't clicking for me. So after my first year, I was like, "Mm, I don't think I'm gonna go back. (laughs) So I didn't.
1: She says there really wasn't much the college could have done since she was doing pretty well in her classes. But it sounds like what she really needed was more career counseling.
4: I just thought maybe I just need a break because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I was like, what's the point of doing this? So while she took that break, she was
1: able to take on other work. And suddenly, she was earning more money and having more fun. And college was seeming less and less important to get back
4: to. I didn't feel like I needed a degree because I was making really good money at the time. Right? Bartending and serving and all of that stuff. It, it is a money maker if you do it right. It wasn't until I got my first, and I'm putting this in quotes, big kid job that I realized how important, if you're going to work in a corporate setting, how important that degree really is. That big kid job
1: was at Rockwell Collins, a giant multinational company that happens to be based in her hometown of Cedar Rapids. These days, the company is known as Raytheon. It was the place to land a job if you wanted secure, well-paying work with benefits.
4: I stumbled upon this this job by a temp agency and met with them. They liked me. They sent my resume over, which I had absolutely no idea how to do. Mm. I They helped me do that, thankfully, because you don't need a resume to work at a restaurant, right? Or not back then you didn't. So they sent the resume over to the hiring manager. Hiring manager said, okay, let's let's talk a little bit. I spoke with him and then I got hired on. As a temp. That was about 17 years ago,
1: when Gina was 25 years old. And what she realized then was that there's a kind of hidden curriculum that she was getting at college that she actually needed more of. And it wasn't just about academic subjects, but
4: it was more about how to operate in a corporate setting. Because it teaches you, you're not just learning the content of what's in the books. You're learning a whole lot of extra stuff. I learned how to keep my mouth shut because I used to be a class talker. Um, I learned how to listen and not just hear what people are saying. Um, I, I learned how to keep my temper, um, not kind of fly off the handle or butt into conversations and stuff like that. So a lot of those a lot of those nuances of working in a professional setting that I didn't really think about at the time when I went into, or when I, you know, shifted careers. Sounds like it
1: started to add up of like, this could be useful to me. Like this could really be.
4: Yeah, absolutely. It absolutely did because I realized those people with the degrees were getting the better jobs and making the more money and you know that's what we all need to survive money right so if i wanted to if i wanted to be able to continue to have the lifestyle that i had i needed to make more money and how was i going to make more money get a better job how was i going to get a better job i had to get the degree So here she was. She was working
1: at a contractor for Rockwell-Collins, doing some data entry, and she kept applying for more
4: solid positions inside the company itself. But because I didn't have that degree, I automatically would get rejected for these jobs that I knew I could do. But then one day, Gina caught a break, thanks to a connection
1: she made with a higher-level employee at Rockwell-Collins.
4: I got, um hooked up with a manager in the learning and development department. We became fast friends. She said, I have an opening. One of my other trainers is leaving. I think you would be a great fit. Let's talk more. So I did. I went through a three-step interview process with her, with the whole team. And then I had to do a uh, training, you know, a, a faux training demo and got the job. So you, you, were, you proved yourself through experience with, yeah. with yeah, people of this company. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I sure did. Yeah, all I had to do was, you know, get that chance, and I got it.
1: For the past few years, she's worked at a different tech company in town called Windstream.
4: But again, she only got that job
1: because of a personal connection. Someone who saw her work firsthand recommended
4: her. Because if I would have just applied for it, you know, sight unseen my application probably would have gotten rejected because I click no on the do you have a degree part. Because, you know, honest, you have to be honest on those, obviously. And the way the HR systems are built, spoiler alert, a lot of times they can choose to automatically reject anybody that says no to do you have a degree.
1: Yeah, so you're not getting a look, you're not getting a human at all. You're just...
4: No, yep, you're just out, right out the system.
1: So now that she's in this professional job, why consider going back
4: to finish that degree? It was a matter of money. Apparently I'm very money driven and I think I'm just now realizing that. We're having an epiphany here, Jeff.
1: Like you said though, we all do need money.
4: Right, absolutely we do. You, can't,
1: you literally cannot live without it, sorry. In this, Gina's definitely not alone.
2: This population really wants clear answers about college.
1: That's Iris Palmer from New America again.
2: They want to know what they're going to get out of it. They want to know how long it's going to take for them to finish. And they want to know how much it's going to cost (laughs) and what their job prospects are getting out. And I don't think they're alone in that, but they are particularly keyed in on those questions and you need to be able to answer them clearly it sounds very basic but many colleges can't answer those questions really clearly for this population because they're coming in with credit they're coming in with experience and so there needs to be some kind of evaluation process you really need to be able to understand those questions and answer those questions very clearly to some extent on the website and then also be very responsive in um to these students when they're asking you questions. I've had personal experience with uh, friends going back, trying to ask colleges questions, and those colleges just never getting back to them. It's way more common than you might think, and you cannot do that with this population. They get discouraged very easily in that way.
1: Tim Lum is 34 years old and lives in Honolulu, and his story is a little different. When he finished high school, he he didn't go straight to college like Paul and Gina did. In fact, he had been dissuaded from going to college
6: by his parents. I wasn't taught the importance of education, you know, when I was younger. Um, I I was raised a Jehovah's Witness and very dedicated, you know. My dad's like what you would consider like a priest. Uh, as well as a bunch of my uncles, a lot large in my family, it's kind of a big thing. So, um, you know, I was probably doing as much work for the church, the quote unquote church, as you know, uh, the congregation, as schoolwork or you know, being in class. So I was consistently pretty busy. So when it came to school, it kind of just seemed like something I had to do. And being very dedicated to the church, I was. Uh, never, I, I kind of just had more fun in school. How does, how does the religion play into that? It's interesting. Um, because the most important thing is to serve God. And so sure. anything sure. that could detract from that is considered uh, negative or unnecessary. And so higher okay. education, even though it does promote stability, my mom was always like, oh, just work in restaurants, you know, like, it'll be good. Like, you know, you're really good at it, you're social, you know, keep life simple.
1: Tim's upbringing was also guided by a rich mix of cultural traditions.
6: But I, yeah, I was born and raised here, but I'm actually a uh, Japanese-Chinese Okinawan. Uh, my dad awesome. is Chinese. My mom is Japanese-Okinawan. Um, and my, yeah, I was raised in a very consistent pattern to, you know, those cultures. Uh, but of course, my mom is local. I was born and raised here. My dad is from China. Um, you know, like the TV shows, like they say... <laughs> You know, your parent, your, dad, or your parent from China or Chinese parent doesn't say I love you. Yeah, I've heard, probably heard him say that maybe like four or five times in my whole life. <laughs> uh, my mom, very compassionate, very local, uh, very kind. Yeah, so it's it's it was a very nice balance.
1: Tim did try a trade school after high school for auto mechanics. It was at a place called the New York Technical Institute of Hawaii. But he quickly found that working under cars all day it just wasn't for him.
6: And then I was just like, oh, man, I'm dirty. You know, like, you fix one problem, then there's always another problem.
1: So he dropped out of that program. And he ended up having a major rift from his family as well.
6: So I left my parents' place when I was 19, a girl, of course. And I mean, you know, so I left the organization, the religion. uh, And I mean, I still had that mm, foundation of, you know, oh school doesn't matter, higher education doesn't matter, all of these things. Uh, And so I just, I think at that point, though, like, because I made that conscious decision to leave, it was weird because, you know, I wasn't sure what to really believe in at that point.
1: And he wasn't really sure what direction to take.
6: It was a long journey to sort out, you know, what I thought was right by my own standards versus what you know. I mean, I guess that's the the challenge of any young person or uh, as they become an adult deciding on what they believe is right versus what they're taught.
1: That journey of figuring out who you are and what you believe in, that's what happens to many folks at a residential college. And I can't help but think that back when Tim was 19, he would have benefited so much from the structure and mentorship and and the vibe of a college campus. But he did find his own communities and his own ways to explore his identity. Some of that happened in an emerging rave scene in Honolulu more than a decade ago.
6: In the peak of my despair (laughs) um, because of, you know, the whole leave my family thing, I have found the rave scene to be a a definitely, like a bit of a comfort, Uh, it it was like my home.
1: If you're not up on what raves are, they're these usually all night dance parties set to techno music where participants do things like wave light sticks around to the music and some, but certainly not all, use drugs like
6: ecstasy to enhance the experience.
1: I asked Tim to pull up some videos that he had made during that time.
6: So this is gloving. It's basically when people are rolling, you know, on E, on um, ecstasy, there's these lights or like these gloves that people will wear and put lights on the tips of your fingers and then like do like kind of like a show, you know? People get really good at it and it's pretty impressive it's pretty amazing i just i was just fascinated with the whole culture um and this was before it became mainstream so it was a very tight-knit community uh and i mean of course the drugs definitely was part of it but everybody kind of like cared for each other it was like very aloha you know in hawaii so like the rave scene it's all about oh we are one you know we are together you know um Uh, Tao like together as one you know it's all based off of caring about each other you know especially as you're rolling you know so you love everybody but it it matches very much so with Aloha and so the community that was created here uh before it became mainstream was like this ultra Aloha (laughs) like lovey thing um but it, it was cool so yeah that I definitely fell into this Pretty hard
1: it even turned into a gig of sorts for Tim since he worked with some friends to start a specialty lights company for Ravers and later even worked for a company that organized rave events you're hearing music from one of that company's promotional videos as Tim met people from all over the world through this rave scene, he started looking up to those who had gone to college.
6: When I would encounter people who have gotten their degrees and uh, like have certain skills, I was always. In amazement, you know, like I was kind of nothing to them.
1: Oh, so you felt like they were up a- a better than you somehow.
6: Because of, yes, definitely. Because like, the way that you learn things and how you learn things is so important, you know, and that you can mm. pick up skills and like habits and techniques, you know, that I was like, oh my God, you know, like this is some magical, special place where people level up, you know, and evolve.
1: <laughs> Even though Tim has done all kinds of interesting gigs and run successful events, he doesn't see that experience as what he needs to really level up in life.
6: I've always been good at planning, um, but being social and planning isn't really like a skill, like a technical skill. It's just sure. like a good personality trait. <laughs> and I mean, of course there's spectrum levels to it, but uh, yeah, so I realized, man, if I want to get f- stable financially, you know, I definitely need to have some type of training and uh, college is a great place for that. <laughs> All three of these students
1: came to a place where they found themselves longing to go finish a college degree. But what would it take to actually get them to do it? To find a way to re enroll and get back on track with their higher education? We'll find out on our next episode of Second Acts. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you explorations of innovation in education. This is the first of our Second Acts series following these three returning adult college students as they try to finish their degrees. To make sure you don't miss what happens to Paul, Gina, and Tim, follow the Ed Search podcast wherever you listen, and please take a minute to give us a rating or a review. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young, and I'm on Twitter, at JRYoung. Editing this episode by Rob McGinley Myers. And special thanks to Becky Koenig. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. This podcast series is supported by the Lumina Foundation. We'll be back next week with a regular episode of the Ed Surge podcast. And we'll be back in a few weeks with the next episode of Second Acts. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks again to EdSurge, WorkTrip, Lumina Foundation, and the generous adult learners interviewed in this episode. Do go and check out all the show notes at the EdTech podcast and see you next time for more episodes in this series and beyond.